Our second reading comes from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 61, beginning with verse 1. Let us listen for and hear God's holy word. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to bring good news to the oppressed, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and release to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who mourn in Zion, to give them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a faint spirit. They will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord who display his glory. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. I will faithfully give them their recompense. I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants shall be known among the nations and their offspring among the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge that they are a people whom the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My whole being shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with a garland, as a bride adorns herself with jewels, for as the earth brings forth its shoots, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to spring up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before the nations. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. May your good news come, O Lord, not only in the words spoken, but in and through the power of your Holy Spirit and with full assurance. Amen. In the Museum of Contemporary Art in Chicago, there's an aluminum and plexiglass signboard near the elevator on the second floor. It looks almost exactly like the one we have on one of the pillars at the corner of our property, right out here on the corner of church and state. A lot of churches have these. Most of the time we see them with punny sayings or service times or announcing the sermon title for Sunday. But at the top of the sign in the museum, it says, Evenings at 7 in the Parish Hall. Then below it lists the week's activities. Monday, Alcoholics Anonymous. Tuesday, Abused Spouses. Wednesday, Eating Disorders. Thursday, the Anti-Hate Coalition. Friday, Teen Suicide Watch. Saturday, Soup Kitchen. And at the very bottom, the sign reads, Sunday Sermon, 9 a.m., America's Joyous Future. It's a piece of art by Erica Rothenberg, who's poking fun at the church and our relentless insistence on hope and joy, even when it flies in the face of all reality. Walter Brueggemann cautions about the same thing. He says it's tempting for us preachers to become the good humor men and women who want to rush in and smooth things out and reassure and cover up grief. 
We all want to paint a prettier picture of the world. Brueggemann says in a hospital room, we want to be cheery. In a broken marriage, we want to imagine everything will be all right. But false cheerfulness denies the reality of suffering and death around us, and it makes us numb. Psychic numbing. That's what it's called. Robert J. Lifton, who was a psychiatrist in the middle of the last century, is the one who coined the phrase, psychic numbing. It came out of his work in world, after World War II when he talked with survivors of Hiroshima. What he discovered was that they all developed a coping mechanism. You're aware of what's happening around you, but you cease to feel anything about it. It's kind of like PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. Experts refer to it as emotional anesthesia. There's just so much, so much horrifically wrong that if I try to absorb it or acknowledge it, I'll just collapse. So I'll pretend everything is wonderful. But the church, I think, is called to something more. The church is called to help the world face the truth, to look suffering and death and evil in the face and name it for what it is. Not to sugarcoat it, but to acknowledge it. We attempt to do that every week in our worship when we begin our time together before God and one another, publicly expressing our sin and grief and our fear through our corporate prayer of confession. And then through mission, outreach, and advocacy work, the church points out the need for change, and then we roll up our sleeves and get to work. Through study and sermon and prayers, the church calls people to live into hope, not blind optimism, but hope in God and what God is doing as proclaimed by the prophets and the apostles. Brueggemann says the task of prophetic imagination is to cut through the numbness. The prophet engages in what he calls a futuring fantasy. The prophet doesn't ask if the vision can be implemented because it doesn't matter if it can be implemented. The vi we, it doesn't matter if you can implement the vision until you can imagine what the vision is. Imagination has to come before implementation. Brueggemann concludes, our culture can implement almost anything, but can imagine almost nothing. It's the job of the prophet to keep alive the ministry of imagination, to keep on conjuring up and proposing alternative futures. The Lord has sent me to bring good news to the oppressed to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and release to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Isaiah is one of our best examples of this kind of prophetic imagination. If you remember your biblical history, you may know that by chapter 61 in Isaiah, it's about the year 520 BC, and the writer whom scholars refer to as 3rd Isaiah is speaking to the Israelites who finally returned to Jerusalem after their long, long, long exile in Babylon. The Lord has sent me to bring good news. This is the year of the Lord's favor. This is the year of jubilee. 
It's a reference all the way back to the book of Leviticus, chapter 25, which proclaims that every 50th year will be a year of jubilee, a year when the fields lie fallow, that is, untilled, unseeded, unplanted, crop-free, bare, empty. Property is returned to its original owners. Loans are forgiven. Debts are canceled. Slaves are freed. Everything that was lost is restored. Jubilee. It's an act of hopeful imagination on the part of the prophet because what the Israelites are actually facing back in Jerusalem post-exile is anything but jubilee. What they're, lo- what they're looking at is complete and total devastation. The temple is still a pile of rubble. The city is barely livable. Those who've stayed show all the signs of psychic numbing, of PTSD. But Isaiah sees something different. Isaiah sees the year of the Lord's favor. Isaiah sees possibility. Isaiah sees jubilee. And just like that, this hope, this joy, this prophetic imagination cannot be contained on the pages of this first testament, the Old Testament. No, because Mary sees it too. God has shown strength. God has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. God has brought down the powerful and lifted up the lowly. God has filled the hungry with good good things and sent the rich away empty. God has helped us according to the promises. You probably know that it's called Mary's Magnificat, Mary's Canticle, her song, her prelude to the hope and the joy that's on its way. The interesting thing about the Magnificat is Mary's choice of verbs. She's singing, singing in past tense about the child who's currently still in her womb. And she's also singing ahead of time, not in a future tense, but as if the promise had already come true. Greek scholars call it the aorist tense. And and like a lot of things with biblical Greek, we don't have a very good translation for it in English. It means past action already accomplished with ongoing effect. Past action already accomplished with ongoing effect. God has done this. God is doing this. God will go on doing it, showing strength and lifting up the lowly and filling the hungry and helping God's people according to the promises. The God who was and is and is to come, amen and amen. It's an interesting stance to take because in the big scheme of things, Mary's got nothing. She's a pregnant teenager from a nondescript backwater town in the middle of nowhere. She has no sonogram, no husband, not even an affidavit from the Holy Spirit that says, yeah, in fact, the child really is God's. Now leave her alone. She's got nothing. Nothing except hopeful imagination and the willingness to believe that the God who has chosen her will be part of whatever happens next. And that apparently is enough to make her burst into song. Long before she gets a handle on how it's all going to turn out, Mary here 
is singing a prelude. And I think maybe that's why we too love to sing, especially in this season of the year. And whether you were aware of it or not, in Advent and for Christmas, we also sing in Mary's aorist tense, past action already accomplished with ongoing effect. Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. No more let sin and sorrow grow. He rules the world with truth and grace. Mild he lays his glory by, born that we no more may die. Born to raise us from the earth, born to give us second birth. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Joy to the world, the Savior reigns. Past action, already accomplished, ongoing effect. And it helps you know. The singing, it helps because it helps us to be able to do something. Back in the civil rights era, psychologists studied the effects of stress on children here in the South, stemming from the fear and violence around school desegregation. And children back then were stressed and overwhelmed and anxious, much like our children today. What psychologists back then found was that children whose families were actively engaged in the civil rights struggle were emotionally healthier than those whose families weren't. In spite of the dangers and the hatred and the threats to which they were exposed, children whose families were doing something to encourage this radical change were much better off emotionally and psychologically. Because psychologists learned it helped to be able to do something. A decade and a half later, in the height of the Cold War, a teacher reported that in her second grade class, all but one of the children said they expected a nuclear war to occur. When the remaining child was asked why he was so confident about the future, he answered, because my mom and dad go to meetings to stop nuclear war. It helps to do something. And I think that's why we love to sing. With our country and the world seemingly pushed to the breaking point, it helps to do something. In the face of our current realities, in the face of our anxieties, in the face of escalating violence and circling despair, it helps to sing. Because when we sing it enough, we begin to believe it ourselves. I don't know what challenges are going on in your lives right now, what obstacles stand in your way or how your future might be clouded by fear or uncertainty, but I'm certain there's something. We all have something. It'd be nice to have some detail about how it all turns out, but we almost never get that kind of clarity. Instead, what we get are a few promises and a reminder. The Mighty One has done great things for us. The God who has been faithful in our past can be trusted with our future. So like Mary, we sing. Joy to the world. The Lord is coming. Amen. Let us turn to God in prayer. Great God of the prophets and truth-tellers, 
great voice of truth who speaks through unexpected voices and works mighty deeds from fragile possibilities. We gather here to know your presence and to listen for your truth. Let our listening reach to hear the voice of young Mary. Let us listen for her voice, the voice of an adolescent girl in an insignificant village in a marginal province, far from the centers of power. Extend our listening to hear her where she might be speaking today in war-torn Ukraine, on the streets where too many live, in the homes of those struggling with broken relationships, in government offices where division and fear seem so rampant. Extend our listening, God, to hear the song of truth and hope you are putting in our mouths, to sense the future that you are moving into our midst, a future world put right. Extend our listening, God, that we may receive and affirm and listen with the eager ears of elderly Elizabeth, wise with years of waiting. Let us listen fully and deeply for the hope you are preparing, for the hope that you gave Elizabeth through her joyful greeting to Mary. Let us feel the future moving in us as well. Let us listen fully and deeply for the hope, peace, and joy, and to listen deeply to the truth speaking in us. O oh God, extend our listening to the deepest reaches of our own souls. Extend our listening through the cares that each of us brings on our hearts this morning. Listen as we bring financial worries, the preoccupations with our health, our concern for loved ones whose lives are strained out of control, our angers and aggravations, our inundation with activity. Extend our listening into all that we bring today to hear the transforming truth about our lives. Extend our listening until we listen with all that we are, our whole beings. But, oh God, many are fraught with illness, disease, and injury, and so we pray for those who need your healing touch, for Wallace McClure and for Libba Wall, and yet we give thanks for the new life that you give to us through new births. We remember the Ragsdale family, and baby Lucas giving thanks for his life. Extend our listening, O God, until we become the voice that speaks as Mary to say, my soul magnifies God and my spirit rejoices. May the listening of our souls enlarge your listening until we truly hear you from unexpected places in the farthest reaches of the earth and the most remote territories of our own souls. Extend our listening that we may magnify you. Hear us now as we pray that prayer your son taught us, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. With joyful hearts, let us respond to God's mercy and grace. Let us worship God through our tithes and offerings. (laughs) 